0: That's all about before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of this day. We pray that you would bless your people, that you would be with your people, that you would you would uh, certainly see us through these difficult times and these challenging times. We pray that your your uh, provision would always be here. We pray that you'd bless this ministry and those worshiping you in spirit and truth. And we just uh, thank you for all the wonderful praises and the gifts that you've bestowed upon us, and we just ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Amen. Y'all might be, uh, may be seated. Today I want to speak on a belief called a dispensationalism. It's kind of a long word, dispensationalism. As we'll uh, see in this me- uh, message, this is contradictory to what we find uh, within Scripture. So what is dispensationalism? What is this? So I want to share this is from uh, Theopedia.com, but it describes dispensationalism, what it is. It says dispensationalism is a theological system that teaches biblical history is best understood in light of a number of successive administrations of, says, God's dwell, uh, dealings with mankind, which it calls dispensations. Dispensations is, are, is just Times. It says it maintains fundamental distinctions between, uh, I'm going to say, Yahweh's plan for national Israel and for the New Testament church and emphasizes prophecy of the end times in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church prior to Christ's second coming. Its beginnings are usually associated with the Plymouth Brethren movement in the UK and the teachings of John Nelson Darby. So we find here that dispensationalism is this uh, belief or this idea that divides biblical history during different times or different events, maybe. We also see here that it emphasizes a distinction between the promises given to Israel and and then to the church. And this is a bit troubling. We'll talk more about that as we go through this message. We also see here that there's a separation, according to dispensationalism, between the pre-tribulation rapture, which we don't believe in here, and the second coming of the Messiah, Yahshua the Messiah. Now, according to what we find here, when did this belief, when did this theology arise? What's the origins? It says here that it began with the Plymouth Brethren movement in the UK, and also a man very notable with church theology, and that is John Nelson Darby. Now the uh, Plymouth Brethren was established in Plymouth, England, in 1831. So this certainly does not go back to the apostolic era. It's 1831. They are considered a, a conservative branch. Or still are still around? Conservative branch of Christianity, based on what I've read. They don't use computers. They don't own televisions. So listen to the radio. Attend university. Stand for political office. Vote or visit places of entertainment. So they are very much of a conservative group. Now, for those unfamiliar with uh, John Nelson Darby, he was born in 1800 and died 1882. He was actually a member of the uh, Plymouth Brethren and, cons- can- and is considered to be the father of the modern dispensationalism movement. So really, if you're going to tie this to any man, it would be John Nelson Darby, I believe he's also the one that came up with the gap theory. And many other beliefs that are a bit odd, but um, he certainly is considered again the father of dispensationalism. For me, the main takeaway point here is that prior to the 1800s, there was no dispensationalism. So this belief arose in the 1800s, and as we're going to see, it certainly is not uh, doesn't align with Scripture. Now, according to most dispensationalists. So those who advocate this dispensational belief, there are seven distinct distinct dispensations, seven. So I want to share those with you. We're going to talk about each one of these. So again, seven dispensations. First one is called the dispensation of innocence, or some say freedom. And this is from prior to Adam's fall. So from creation to Adam's fall, prior to Adam's fall. Another one is the dispensation of conscience and that is uh, from Adam, the uh, after the fall, and Noah. Third is the dispensation of government, as from Noah to Abraham. Fourth is the dispensation of patriarchal rule or promise, and that's from Abraham to Moses. Number five is the uh, Mosaic law, Moses to Christ or Messiah. The uh, sixth is the uh, dispensation of grace, so that's the dispensation they believe we're currently in. And uh, again, that's the dispensation, dispensation of grace, the uh, current church age. And lastly, there's a last dispensation. That is of the literal, earthly, 1,000-year millennial reign kingdom that is yet to uh, come, but soon will. And we actually, for the most part, agree with that last dispensation. So... On the slide here, the uh, first dispensation, again, is known as the dispensation of innocence or freedom. This would, again, be the time between creation and before the fall of Adam. Since there was no sin during this time, again, it's known as the dispensation of innocence or dis- the dispensation of freedom. No sin. Again, this was before the fall of Adam. The next one here is known as the dispensation of conscience, which covers a time between Adam's sin and Noah. Why is this time called the dispensation of conscience? We' it's believed that during this time, Yahweh gave mankind the knowledge of good and evil. That's why it's called the dispensation of conscience. And we do know that Yahweh did give them in a, in a way, I guess, because they partook of the forbidden fruit, and they understood Good from evil. So from that point forward, Yahweh again gave them this dispensation of conscience. Third dispensation is known again as a dispensation of government. This runs again between the time of Noah, between Noah and Abraham. As you might assume from the title, this marks the formation of governments based on again how they divide time. An example of this is the city of Babel. We all know about the city of Babel, most of us anyway. It's kind of a big deal in Scripture. As we see in Scripture, mankind gathered in one place, began to build a tower. Their goal was to reach to heaven. And Yahweh confounded or, or confused the languages at that time. Now, the fourth dispensation is called the dispensation of patriarchal rule or promise. And this runs between Abraham and Moses prior to the giving of the law. So Abraham to Moses prior to the giving of the law. This time marks the lives of the patriarchs, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and again goes through Moses, but before the law was given at Sinai. Now this brings us to the fifth dispensation, and that is again the dispensation of the Mosaic law, which marks a time between the giving of the law, when Moses received the law, to the time before was death. According to those who believe this, it was during this time when mankind was under the requirements of the law. Mankind was obligated to obey the commandments during this time. Now, roughly how many years were there between Adam and Moses? Does anybody know? How many years between Adam and Moses? According to most scholars, the time between these two men was about 2,500 years. 2,500 years. Now, why is this important? Why is is it important to understand that 25 years existed between Adam and Moses? According to those who believe in dispensationalism, mankind was without the law for 2,500 years because the law was not given. The dispensation did not exist until Moses. But we know scripturally that the law was given, the law was known, the law was kept Prior to Moses, so again that 's one problem with this whole dispensation concept. it just doesn't square with what we find from uh, scripture and this is one reason why I have a concern with this theology. again, it teaches that the commandments were non existent before Sinai and are irrelevant today, only during this time between Moses. And before Yahshua's death, before the Messiah's death, were the commandments necessary or obligatory. Now, the uh, sixth dispensation is called the dispensation of grace again. It marks a time between Yahshua's death and his return or second coming. What is the main difference between this dispensation and the previous? Where the previous one was based on obedience. The previous one was based on obeying the commandments that Yahweh gave to Moses. On Mount Sinai. Versus this dispensation is based solely and completely on the concept of grace, and grace alone. There is no need to obey. There is no need to follow the commandments because, again, we are not under that dispensation. That dispensation has is no longer. It is kind of has come and gone. Now we're under this dispensation of grace. Again, this is why dispensationalism is so troubling. Some points are well-intended, but you can't divide the time as they do. It removes, in this case, the need to obey the commandments, to obey the one we worship, including things like not stealing, not committing adultery, not coveting. It removes the need to obey our Father in heaven. You know, as we'll see later, there are many examples of where the Messiah and the Apostles spoke about obeying the commandments. We know we see examples in the Old Testament of the commandments. It says that Abraham obeyed the commandments. We see that in Scripture long before Moses. Hundreds of years, we know that Abraham also obeyed the commandments. The Sabbath commandment was given in the very beginning, long before Moses received the commandment. The final dispensation here is the millennial kingdom, which marks the 1,000-year reign of Yahshua the Messiah. Now, we believe in this. We, we believe this is right. The uh, millennium, that is. As we see in prophecy, those found worthy of the first resurrection, they're going to be found in, or during this time, the millennium. They're going to be a kingdom of priests. You know, hopefully that's going to be us. Hopefully we're going to be found worthy. Hopefully we're going to be doing what's right. Hopefully we're going to be found worthy of that promise, to reign and rule with our Savior, Yahshua the Messiah. Now, according to this same article, there are four basic beliefs or four basic tenets that are formed from dispensationalism. So you have the seven dispensations, and as a result, here are the here's the impact. Here's the four different beliefs or tenets that arise from dispensationalism. It says, in addition, this is the same source, by the way, theopd.com dispensationalism In addition to these dispensations, a real theological significance can be seen in four basic beliefs or tenets. So the first one is foundational, fundamental distinction between Israel and the church. That is, there are two peoples, as it says here, peoples of God with two different destinies, earthly Israel and the spiritual church. So you have the You have the Israelites, and now you have the assembly. But they are distinct, they are separate. Another um, distinction here is fundamental distinction between the law and grace. That is, they are mutually exclusive ideas. That's the big one. That now, since we are under grace, law does not exist. There's no need to obey we have no obligation to obey our Father in heaven because now we're under this dispensation of grace. They are, they are, as it says here, they are mutually exclusive. They are different. They are distinct. They are divided. They are separate. Next point here is the view that the New Testament church is a parenthesis in, uh, in Yahweh's plan, which was not foreseen by the Old Testament. And lastly, here, distinction between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. It says that is the rapture of the church, of Christ's coming, and earth precedes the official second coming to the earth by seven years of tribulation. That's known as the pre-tribulation rapture, and that is seven years. Some say three and a half of this uh, belief says seven. We don't believe in the rapture. It's all about the second coming if we look at it. So these are the four basic differences. These are the four. These are the four beliefs that arise, if you will, from, from dispensationalism. I want to spend the remainder of this message message focusing on the first two points here. And, and again, that's the belief that there is a fundamental distinction or difference between Israel and the assembly, and also that the law is no longer obligatory. But I want to start with the first one here. You know, I believe that this division is one of the main or major reasons why we see so many issues, so many concerns within the church today. As we see in the Bible, there is a great harmony between the promises Yahweh gave to Israel in the old and what we see in the new. There's not a great divide. There's not a distinction. There's not a separation. There's a harmony. There's a continuance. But again, according to dispensationalism, there's this great divide. There's this great separation. You have Israel over here, and you have the church over here, and the twain shall not meet. And yet we know scripturally that this just isn't right. An example of the uh, promise, of a promise that we find in both old and new is found in Exodus 19. We're going to see a similar promise in the New Testament as well. It says, Exodus nineteen five through 6 says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. I want to begin here by pointing out something. And that is what we find here is a conditional promise. What Yahweh gave here to the Israelites was a conditional promise. Yahweh says here, if you will obey my voice. You see, there's a conditional promise. Yahweh's giving a promise, but it was based on the condition of them obeying. The promise that Yahweh gave to Israel of old was based on their willingness to comply, to obey, and to follow in his ways. As we're going to see shortly... This hasn't changed in the New Testament. We see this same promise in the New Testament. So what was a promise that Yahweh gave here at Israel? What promise do we find within this passage? If they would obey him, he promised that they would be a peculiar treasure, a peculiar treasure above all people, and that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now these should all sound very familiar to us. These promises should sound very familiar to us a peculiar treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. That's what we're all striving to achieve. I want to remember the uh, promises we find here. I want you to really keep, keep these in mind because, again, we're going to find these promises in the New Testament. Now, what did Yahweh mean here when he promised that Israel would be a peculiar treasure? It's kind of odd, peculiar. It's not a real positive word. What did he mean here, peculiar? or well, we are peculiar in many ways. We certainly don't. We, 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 don't, we don't go with the flow. We, we don't go with the masses, doctrinally. But it really doesn't mean, it's not negative. This phrase comes from the Hebrew sigil law. The uh, word is found eight times in Hebrew, translating the King James in the following. Peculiar treasure three times. Peculiar two times. Special one time. I like that, special Jewel, one time, and peculiar treasure, one time. The Brown Driver Berg Cebre lexicon defines this word as quote, valued property, valued. You see, we're special, we're treasured, we're valued, valued property, and we belong to Yahweh. I like that. Valued property. Some people may take offense to that, but I like that. Valued property. We belong to our Father in Heaven. Peculiar treasure which Yahweh has chosen and taken to himself. So that's what this word conveys. It is a valued property. It is a treasure that Yahweh has taken unto himself. So we find that the word peculiar should be not viewed as something negative. It's really something positive, something very positive. It's a jewel or a treasure, again, that Yahweh has taken as his own. So again, this promise that Yahweh gave to Israel of old would would be there if they would obey. If they would obey. Now we find a, a again a similar promise to this in the New Testament. I want to share that. 1 Peter, First Peter two, beginning in verse seven. It says, "Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient." So notice that. This is New Testament. He's speaking about. Disobedience. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, where whereunto also they were appointed. So we find that some reject Joshua, some reject him. They reject the word; they are disobedient. But he goes on to say, "But you are a chosen generation." Now listen to the verb that's here. Listen to the promise we find here. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of Elohim, which had not obtained mercy, but now... Have obtained mercy. Do you see any similarities between what we find here and what we read in the book of Exodus? The same promises that we saw in Exodus, we find here from Peter. We see here the promises of a peculiar people, same promise we saw in the Old Testament. We find here the promise of a priesthood, same promise we find in the Old Testament. We find here the promise of a holy nation, again, same promise we find in the Old Testament. We also find here the concept of obedience through Peter's admonition of those who were disobedient. Peter calls out here those who were disobedient. In verse 8, Peter again says, Even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. So we find here that those disobedient are outside of Yahweh's promise. It shows that obedience is still necessary. If disobedience removes us from the promise, obedience is required to be part of the promise. So you see, nothing's changed. Yahweh in the Old Testament said, if you obey me. And here in Peter, he's speaking about those who are outside because they are disobedient. So to be part of the promise, to be a peculiar people, to be a holy nation, to be a treasure to our Father in heaven, to the one we worship, we must not be disobedient. I also want to look at Revelation 20 verse 6. This aligns with Exodus. It says here, Revelation 26, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. And such the second death, on such the second death has no power. But they shall be, listen, priests of Elohim and of Messiah, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And thousand years, let's see, millennium. So this is speaking about those found worthy of the first resurrection, which we know occurs when? The first resurrection occurs at the return of our Savior. When our Savior returns, he will then resurrect the saints. That's what we find within Scripture. Again, there's no such thing as a rapture, but we do find a resurrection. But that will occur at his coming. It shows here that these people, those who are blessed to be part of this first resurrection, that they will also be exempt from the second death or the second resurrection Now, for those unfamiliar with the first resurrection, again, this takes place when our Savior returns. And um, again, we see here that they will uh, be exempt, that the second death will have no power over them. Now, the second death is also known as a great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. There's two resurrections in Scripture. One is the first, one is the second. Now, the second one is also known as a great white throne judgment. And we also know that the first is all of uh, the chosen, so those called and chosen. And then the second resurrection is for the rest of the remainder of mankind. Now we see here that those from the resur- uh, first resurrection, that they are going to serve, that they are going to serve as a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests unto Almighty Yahweh. Now this is the same promise that we found In the Old Testament. Yahweh told the Israelites, he says, if you will obey me, I am going to make you into a kingdom of priests. And here we find in the book of Revelation, thousands of years later into the future, that Yahweh promised those who are found worthy of the first resurrection that they're going to be part of a priesthood, just as we found in Exodus 19. We find that again in the book of Revelation. Tell me that there's this great divide between Old and New Testament. There's not a great divide. There's a great harmony, but there's not a great divide. There's not a great separation, as dispensationalism believes. And again, as we saw in 1 Peter, we uh, too must walk in obedience if we want these same promises. Again, dispensationalism teaches that there's this division between Old and New Testament, or between Israel of old and, as they would say, the church. That's not what we find in Scripture. When it comes to Yahweh's promises and his chosen people, there is, again, a harmony between the two books. There is, really, the New Testament is a continuance of what we understand and what we see in the Old Testament. Obviously, there's been some changes. We rely on the sacrifice of our Savior, but the commandments... The need to obey, the promises, they're all the same. Paul in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, he speaks about this lack of division, if you will. Ephesians 2, great passage 11 through 16, it says, "Wherefore remember wherefore he's, he's speaking, and he's asking those in Ephesus to remember, to remember what? It says that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who' is speaking to who?" He's speaking to the the non-Jews, Gentiles. He says, who are called uncircumcision. So we see here that the, the Gentiles were called uncircumcision. By that which is called the circumcision, which would be the Jews, in the flesh made by hands. And at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens or foreigners, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Notice that covenants of promise. A lot of people, they just kind of see one covenant or maybe two covenants. There's many covenants. We review this in the last uh, men's discipleship meeting. And without Elohim in the world. But now in Messiah Yahshua, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh or close by the blood of Messiah. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So you see there was a wall, there was a wall that separated the, if you will, uncircumcision by circumcision. But Messiah, he's broken down that wall. Goes on to say, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for, to make in himself of twain one new man. So making peace. And that he might reconcile both, doesn't say just one, it says both. We're speaking about the uncircumcision and the circumcision. We're speaking about the Gentiles and the Jews. And Paul's saying that through the Messiah, he has reconciled both unto Elohim in one body by the stake, having slain the enmity or the hatred or the contentment, the uh, conflict between these two. So Paul's speaking here, and he's addressing the Gentiles. And he's speaking about them being grafted into the same promise that was given to Israel long ago. We find here again that the Gentiles are called what? The Gentiles are called uncircumcision. Uncircumcision. The reason they were called uncircumcision is they were viewed as unclean and really, even more importantly, outside of the promise that Yahweh gave to the Israelites of old. They were outside of the promise. They were uncircumcised. They were outside of the promise. In fact, what is a promise? What was a token of the promise in the Old Testament was circumcision. That's why they were uncircumcised or uncircumcision. Because they were outside of that promise. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant that Yahweh gave to Abraham and his descendants. We find here, though, that all this changed. And it changed through the blood of our Savior. Yahshua broke down the wall of partition and separated Jew from Gentile. Again, dispensationalism will say that there's this great divide. Paul seems to be saying something different here. Paul seems to be saying that there's a continuance. And that the Gentiles are this uncircumcision that they are brought in, that they are grafted, in that they become part of the same covenants or promise that was given to Israel of old, and that he has broke down this wall of partition that existed prior to that, in doing this it says here that Yahshua made in himself one and two or one two of two one new man. it's kind of odd the way that King James has that, in other words, there's no more separation between Jew and Gentile, they are one, they are one, through the Messiah, Paul closes here by saying that Yahshua reconciled both, both unto Elohim in one body, again that doesn't sound to me like there's this great divide, it doesn't sound like there's this great separation, this great division between the Israel of old and quote the church today, Based on what we see here in Ephesians, it seems that Paul would disagree with this theology. That he would disagree with this idea that there's this separation. He says here that Yahshua came, Yahshua died, and that Yahshua broke down this wall that separated the uncircumcision from the circumcision. And that Through him, he has reconciled both uncircumcision and circumcision to Yahweh. You see, there's not two, there's one. There's one body. And through Yahshua's sacrifice, he's brought them in. Before moving on, I want to quickly touch on what Paul says here in his statement, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, containing ordinances. This is often used to say that the law is no longer necessary, to say that there's no need to obey the commandments. So what is Paul saying here? The key in understanding this is, is the word ordinances. It comes from the Greek dogma. Remember that, ordinances, dogma, which refers to laws given by man. I'm going to review real quickly. The, it's only found five times in the New Testament. It's found in a Luke two one. And there it refers to decrees of Caesar Augustus. Acts sixteen verse four is used there to refer to decrees given by the apostles. Again, these these are these are not Old Testament commandments. These were guide guidance from the apostles in this case. Acts seventeen verse seven it refers to the decrees of Caesar again. Colossians two verse fourteen it refers to the commandments of men, and we see that explained in Colossians two verse twenty two. And again, here in this passage, I believe it refers to the Jewish or rabbinical laws that separated Jew from Gentile. You know, the Jews, they created all these additional rabbinical laws. And some of these laws were meant to to keep a separation between them and the other people. But Yahshua, when he came and he died, again, he broke down the wall of partition. He broke down those ceremonial, those rabbinical laws that separated the uncircumcision from the circumcision. The important thing to realize here is that dogma this word never refers to the Old Testament commandments. In every instance it refers to either decrees given by Caesars, Caesar, or by the apostles in one case. I want to transition out of this concept of grace. It's an important important belief. Grace. Now we certainly believe in grace here. Grace is huge. Grace is so important. But we don't believe that there's this great divide between the law and grace, as we find with dispensationalism. Paul in Romans three, beginning in verse twenty-four, speaks about how we are justified by grace. Well, let's read read what he says here. So we're going to read verses twenty-four through twenty-six and Skip down to verse 31 then. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in the Messiah Yahshua. So what is it saying? We are justified freely. You see, this is a gift. Talked about this in the Bible study this morning. Justification is a gift. It's a gift. It's not something we earn. It's a gift. And we find this through the Messiah. It says, whom Elohim hath set forth to be a propitiation, an, an atoning sacrifice is what that means. Through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Notice, sins that are past. That's an important concept. So many people, they think i will just rely on his blood forever. And we certainly can rely on his forgiveness and repent. But Paul says here, remission of past sins. Through the forbearance of Elohim to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believes in in, in Yahshua. Do we then, so verse 31, Paul says, Do we then make void the law through faith? What does he say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Certainly not, he says. Yea, we establish, or yes, we establish the law. Now, before we delve into what Paul says here, I want to talk briefly about justification. What is this? It's a long word, justification. Not quite as long as dispensationalism, but long word. It's so important that we understand the meaning of this word. The word justified comes from the Greek, IO." And according to Strong's means to a render, that is to show or regard as just or innocent. So when we are justified, we are rendered innocent. We are rendered free from our sins. We are justified. We, are, we find the remission of sin through justification. So justification is when a person is rendered free or, 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 or innocent of his or her past sins based on what Paul says here, has a person justified. He says that we are justified freely. That we are justified freely by the grace of the redemption that is in the Messiah, Yahshua. So in other words, justification is not something we earn. Justification is not something we can achieve on our own. Justification is given to us as a free gift, free gift, through the grace of our Savior. You know, when I share the faith with People, I normally say something like, we believe that we are justified freely, that we are justified freely from our sins through through the blood of our Savior. And then normally I will say, we also believe that we are called to live a life of righteousness. And you know, as as I shared in the Bible study today, I've never had anyone say, you know, I don't believe in that concept of keeping a, a walking in holiness. I just don't believe that. They all seem to agree with that until you mention the word commandment. And then they disagree with that. It's also important to recognize that even though we are justified freely through grace, that this does not remove the need to obey the commandments. And again, this is where I have an issue with dispensationalism. This is where I have an issue by saying, okay, here we're to obey and here we're not to obey. Here we have no grace, and here we have all grace. We know that scripture says Noah found grace. Noah found grace. That's all the way back in Genesis. Long before the Messiah came, grace existed. Grace existed all the way back in the flood. Grace existed when Yahweh forgave and did not strike down Adam and Eve and the human race. Grace has existed from the very beginning of mankind. Grace is not this new concept. And yet, again, those who advocate dispensationalism will say that now we are under this dispensation of grace. But we are no longer under this dispensation of the law, the commandments. No need to obey. Just just live in grace. Now, we are justified again freely through grace. I believe that. I'm a strong advocate of that. We cannot earn justification. But that does not mean... That does not mean that there's no need to obey the commandments or to obey the one we worship. This is the difference between a justification and a sanctification. Let's talk about these two words. Justification, we've talked about that. Now, sanctification. We find these words within Scripture, theological terms. Justification is being found, again, innocent of our sins, through the grace, through the blood of our Savior. Sanctification is living a life of holiness, which means that we obey, that we follow the one we worship, including his commandments. Again, this is precisely what Paul says in verse 31. He confirms here that grace does not make void the law. It's almost just, I I believe that Paul anticipated this, this debate. I believe that Paul anticipated some are going to take my words and they're going to twist them. And they're going to say that I'm teaching that the commandments are no longer necessary. So he closes here by saying, does this do away with the commandments? And he responds by saying, absolutely not. And yet still, so many people, they read that and they believe that he did away with the commandments. Even though Paul says at the very end, nope, I'm not, that doesn't work. This does not make void. This does not validate the commandments. I want to read what Paul says in Romans six. Romans six twelve through fifteen. It says, "Let not sin." And we're going to talk about sin. Define sin, scripturally. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So let's not live in sin. Is what he's saying. That you should obey it in a, in the lust thereof. Neither yield you your Members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. What is unrighteousness? So unrighteousness is is going astray. It's not obeying the one we worship. But yield yourselves unto Elohim as as those that are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto Elohim. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? So Paul makes this statement. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. Certainly not, he says. So how does Paul begin this passage? He begins by speaking about the fact that we need to avoid sin. What is sin? Nobody ever talks about sin anymore, do they? How often do you hear sin mentioned within a church? Years ago, fifty years ago, that's all you heard was sin. Not now. Again, I guess now they're living in the dispensation of grace and the avoidance of sin. But Paul says here, he he speaks about sin, and he says that we should avoid sin. What is sin? What is sin? I don't know if you've seen some of these videos or some of these surveys. You ask this group of people, and what is sin? And they come up with all these crazy ideas of what is sin. But you know, Scripture defines sin. The Bible defines sin. The Bible tells us what sin is. So what is sin? 1 John 3, 4 defines sin. 1 John 3, 4 says this, quote, Sin is the transgression of the law. Transgression is breaking. Sin is the breaking of the law. First John 3, 4. Look it up. First John 3, 4. Sin is the breaking or transgression of the law. The Bible defines sin. We don't need to define sin. The Bible defines sin. So as believers, if we are to avoid sin, and we know that sin is the breaking of the law, how do we avoid sin if we willfully break the law? Hopefully that made sense. I want to say one more time. If we are to avoid sin, and we know that sin is a breaking of the law, how do we avoid sin if we willfully and deliberately break the law? It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And yet so many people, they live in this delusion that the law is no longer needed. But the fact is, if we deliberately break the commandments, we are also deliberately committing sin. And we're violating what we find here. Paul goes on here to say that we are not under law, but under grace. As you can imagine, this is often used by those who say that the uh, law is no longer necessary. Based on what Paul says here, though, is that the intent? Is Paul saying here that the commandments are no longer obligatory? Is Paul saying, Look, you're under grace. There's no need to obey. There's no need to do anything. For those who believe this, they need to simply just keep on reading. Paul says next, What then? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? He said, Certainly not. Certainly not. We don't go astray. We don't deviate because we're under grace. This is the same message. We found in Romans 3, verse 31. Again, it's almost like Paul anticipated this. Paul makes these statements, and then he makes these clarifying statements. Paul says this, and then Paul says, look, this does not mean this. Paul says we're not under the law, but under grace. But then Paul says, this does not make void the law, or does not promote the nature of sin. So what does Paul mean here, though, when he says we are not under the law, but under grace? Whereas we saw in Romans 3, I believe he's referring to justification. Again, we are not justified through the law. We are not redeemed through the law. We are redeemed, we are justified freely through the blood of our Savior. I believe this is what Yahshua is referring to, or what Paul is referring to. Paul is not saying that the law is no longer necessary. Paul is saying when it comes to how we are justified and saved. In Romans 6, by the way, is everything to do with baptism and justification. Look it up. The entire passage is speaking about baptism and living a life free from sin. Why would Paul say that the law is no longer necessary? I want to share um, one more passage on obedience. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. This is, this is grossly overlooked by so many ministers and theologians. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29, it says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. So if we understand and we deliberately sin, Scripture says that there remains no more sacrifice. But a certain fearful looking for judgment and fire indignation, which shall devour the adversaries, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now, listen to this. He says, How much more sore punishment suppose you that he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot of the Son of Elohim and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done it despite unto the Spirit of grace? So, what do we find here from Hebrews? Number one, doesn't this sound like we might find uh, something we find in the Old Testament? But no, it's in the New Testament, I can assure you, the book of Hebrews. We find here the penalty of when we willfully or deliberately break sin or break the law or deliberately commit sin. As believers, once we understand the truth and then sin deliberately, we find here that there remains no more sacrifice for sin. That's what Scripture says. If we sin unknowingly, if we sin deliberately... Now, that's not to say we can't be forgiven. I want to make sure I I share that. Scripture says if we confess our sins, that Yahweh is faithful to forgive us. But we're talking about a sacrifice for sins here. And it says here that if we sin deliberately, if we sin willingly, that there remains no more sacrifice for sins. It's hard to fathom how so many ministers can read this passage and yet preach this no-law theology. This is in the New Testament. This isn't something we're making up. This isn't something we find in the book of Exodus. This is something we find in the New Testament. And the writer here is underscoring that if we sin, once we understand the truth, so we do it deliberately, we do it willingly, we do it knowingly, he says there there remains no more sacrifice for sins. We find here the seriousness of sin. It goes on to talk about the punishment of sin under Moses. I want to read this. I read it already once, but I want to read it again. It says, Of how much, and listen to this, Of how much sore punishment suppose you that ye be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of Elohim, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. You see, when we sin, we show that we despise the spirit of grace. How does that work? If the law is no longer needed, if the law is no longer obligatory, why would we be infringing upon the spirit of grace? But that's what it says. This shows just how much more serious I believe sin is under the new covenant. When we willingly sin, we show contempt. We show disregard for the sacrifice of our Savior, we count his blood as nothing. You see, if we accept his blood and, find, and we find redemption through his blood, and then we deliberately and knowingly and willingly commit sin, then we count his blood as something that is, that is of no value. The reason, the reason for this is that Yahshua's blood is so much more precious than the blood of bulls and goats. Can we agree with that? Can we agree that the blood of our Savior is of more value than the blood of bulls and goats? And because of that, when we sin, the punishment is more severe. Because again, we are showing disdain toward the blood of our Savior. When we sin willingly, knowingly, deliberately, we are showing disdain To the blood of our Savior. And again, the blood of our Savior is worth much more, much more than the blood of bulls and goats. The only difference really between the sacrificial system under Moses and the sacrifice of our Savior is that under Moses the penalty was instant. Whereas now we have a moment of grace. We have a moment of grace. But let's not despise that moment of grace by deliberately, willingly, knowingly sinning so what is the lesson here? The lesson here is this. Obedience is not only required but is even more necessary now because the sacrifice we rely on now is greater than the sacrifice that we had in the Old Testament. That's the lesson we find here. That when we deliberately sin that we are not despising the blood of bulls and goats that we are now despising the blood of our Savior. And that is so so much worse than what we find within the Old Testament. What does this mean then for dispensationalism? It shows the absurdity and the fallacy of this belief. That's what it shows. That's what it means for dispensationalism. The notion that the commandments were only valid for Moses until the death of Yahshua could not be further from the truth. We find so many examples. Again, it says that Abraham obeyed Yahweh. We find the example of the Sabbath long before Moses. And we certainly, again, find grace also within the Old Testament. I believe that this no-law theology is why this nation and Christianity is, are in such a mess. This is why we're in a mess in this nation, because we have forsaken the commandments of our, of our Father. You know, it's great to see some of these revivals going on right now. But unless these revivals include keeping the commandments, it's really not a revival. I'm glad to see it, and I hope it leads somewhere. I really do, and I hope that there's this national repentance. But a true revival is when we return back to the word of our Father, meaning that we obey Him. When you remove the need to obey the commandments, you remove Yahweh's morality and ethics. And that's what we are missing today. We are missing morality, or we are missing ethics if we would simply follow what Scripture says, we could fix this world overnight. But we won't. And we're just not going to. It will, um, you know, if we look at the landscape as it is, we find that every vile sin, every vile abomination is accepted and praised by the masses today. You know, it's gotten so bad that a biological man is no longer a Man and that a biological woman is no longer a woman. In fact, many quote smart people, and I put those in parentheses, smart, smart people can no longer even define a woman. The last Supreme Court, they had her up there, and they were asking questions, and one of the questions was, what is a woman? And she could not answer that. This is a Supreme Court justice of this nation, and they can no longer define a woman. It shows you how far we've gone as a nation. It's crazy. You know, when I heard this a few years ago, and I said, this isn't going to take off. There's no way the masses are going to accept. They do. They do. And they don't care. This nation is in a mess. And, you know, Paul speaks about a reprobate mind. A mind that is unfit. A mind that is no longer willing or able to discern truth from error. And that's what we're seeing We're seeing some crazy stuff. We're seeing, again, when we can't define genders, we're in trouble. And we're in trouble. Whereas we see in the Word, we have an obligation as believers to, to have a ready answer, to understand these things. And that's why messages like this one are important. That we understand theology like dispensationalism, what it teaches, what it believes, why it's wrong in this case. Maybe sometimes it's right, but in this case we see the contradiction between it and scripture. So I pray that this uh, message has been a blessing to you. I pray that we've learned something. And I pray that we would take this and, and grow in our knowledge and walk in obedience, always walk in Yahweh's ways, so that again, when our Savior does return, that we can partake of those promises that was given to Israel and then extended, continued into the New Testament. May Yahweh bless you.